The scripture today is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, how is everybody? I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the ministers here at <clears throat> Redeemer City Church. Serve on staff, uh, or uh, some might joke I'm a staff infection around here, um, depending on your perspective. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, we're in the fourth week of Advent, as, as Brad's already alluded to, and I would draw your attention to the front of the worship folder uh, at the bottom where uh, you'll see a little paragraph, it's a season of the cross, uh, and during the seasons of the year, uh, the runners and so forth up here will change, uh, and we're in the season of purple for Advent, but it says Advent's a season of waiting, and during the season of Advent, a little bit further down there, it says we heighten our anticipation of the ultimate fulfillment of a time when these things will happen, the ultimate fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. And what we've been doing the last four weeks, or the last three weeks, including today, is looking at various aspects of this prophecy from Isaiah that Vicki just read, uh, these seven verses, and some of the, the things that it highlights in terms of what are the results, uh, specifically what are the reversals that are brought about by this child king's reign. And so we've looked at uh, thus far three of them. Uh, first, darkness turning to light in verse uh, two. Uh, gloom or sadness turning to joy uh, in verse three. Uh, in verse four last week, uh, oppression and injustice turning to justice and righteousness. And today, uh, peace. Verse 5, uh, we're going to look at uh, the, the, the peace of the Prince of Peace. And so we've been also looking a little bit at the, the, uh, the various titles that Isaiah gives to Jesus. Uh, and I want to say all these reversals are taking place because Jesus has come. Uh, and they are on the increase. They are increasing their presence and impact in the world. So light is increasing. Joy is increasing. Righteousness and justice are on the move. 
Uh, and we've had to remind ourselves each week, uh, and Drew has been very specific and faithful to do this, to say, you might look around and see lots of darkness. You might be full of sadness or gloom yourself or only be able to see that. You might be overwhelmed at the injustice and oppression that you are experiencing or that you see, but light is coming. Light has come. Joy is coming. Joy has come. And so this morning, peace is coming. Peace has come. Hard, hard to say if you live in a place like Yemen, for example, uh, or on a, on, a, on a smaller scale, um, maybe there's uh, an argument you and, and your neighbor across the street have been having, uh, and, and, and you don't have peace about uh, just interacting with them. There are a lot of different applications of this, and what I want to do is try to describe it at the, the macro level or the big level, and then the, the, uh, the micro or the individual level of the pavement of life level, if you will. So if you look there at your outline uh, in your worship folder, uh, we don't have page numbers, but uh, it's, it's a few pages in there. You'll see it. Uh, I'm going to walk through these three things. And so uh, look, at, look there with me. I'm going to look at how we've lost it, this piece. Uh, but the, the Bible calls it shalom. It's a, it's a much more significant word uh, than our word peace. has a lot more implications to it. So how we've lost it, how we get it back, and then its effect through us, its effect on us, and then its effect through us. So first, what does it look like that we've lost it? This idea of shalom being spoiled. Uh, if you you got to go all the way back to the beginning of the story, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, otherwise, uh, just listen as, as we kind of go back here to the first three pages of, of the Bible. If you're wondering, or if you have friends or neighbors, coworkers, who are wondering why the world is the way it is, and, and, and I actually find myself saying this a lot, Take them back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It will help them, even if they don't believe the Bible. It'll help make sense, and it will remind you of why we are in the state that we're in. One writer says it this way, each generation has long ago lost its Eden, a world that is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and millions of old habits congealed into thousands of cultures across all the ages. He's trying to get at how all of this webs together into the brokenness that we experience. And in the aftermath of Genesis chapter three, the Bible describes humanity as being hostages to each other in a very deadly interrelatedness. And the reason is it turns deadly because God designed the world as a piece of fabric. In fact, the Psalms describe the sky and the clouds and other natural forces as garments that God puts on. And, and so the, the, the world is really a fabric, and the relatedness comes as the fabric is put together. The threads are woven under, over, around, and through each other, right? Just like a piece of fabric. You don't just throw a few balls of yarn on a table, and poof, there's a piece of cloth, right? It has to be carefully and creatively put together. And so, in the first pages of the scriptures, there's a picture of God, humans, and creation all interrelated into a tapestry of wholeness and delight until chapter 3, when it's torn or ripped, right? Evil causes trouble in humanity and creation. Disease, as well as theft, birth defects, as well as character defects. Well, what are some of the consequences of this shalom that's spoiled? Well, instead of peace, you get things like chaos, 
revolt, envy, violence, fear, and anxiety. All within the first couple of pages of the Bible, actually. Uh, and, and these things reign. And the reason they reign is because they flow from our commitment to reign. R-E-I-G-N. To reign our kingdom, to build our kingdom, to control our kingdom, rather than fall under the kingdom of God. That's what drove the man and the woman in Genesis 3. The hope of, do you remember, being like God. When they heard those words, something clicked. Oh man, we get to be like God? And of course, the serpent was lying to them as he continues to lie today. But the second half of Genesis 3 describes this alienation and its alienation from God, from each other, and from the earth. And you know, sometimes we, the whole alienation from the earth thing, we, we, we ignore that or we think that, you know, that's mostly hippies and tree huggers that emphasize that part. And speaking as a hippie tree hugger type of person, uh, yeah, it's true, probably, Uh, Not so much the God and everybody else part, but all three of those matter. So if you define peace or shalom, as the Bible calls it this way, uh, it's helpful, I think. It means much more than a peace of mind or a ceasefire uh, between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, universal wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed all under the arch of God's love. Doesn't that sound great? Man, that sounds great. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And from the Bible's point of view, it's this webbing together, the idea of a fabric again, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. And what one of them does affects the others always, always. When they're working in justice, fulfillment, and delight, you have peace, right? In fact, peace is, if you want to think about the epitome of peace, think about it this way from Genesis 3. It's walking and talking with God in his garden in the cool of the day. That's peace. It's not exile. It's not fugitive. It's not wandering like Cain in chapter 4, who was a marked man. And remember, he was scared. If you read in chapter 4, he fears for his life. That's you and I, by the way. We fear for our life, not literally, at least not sometimes, there are times when we may, but for our reputational life, for our character, we fear for those things, right? And so we live wandering, hiding, fleeing, exiled from who we really are. And we walk around posing and pretending because we don't want anybody to really know or discover who we are. So how does that affect us? Well, there's, there's additionally, I should say, where do we experience the residue of this shalom spoiling? Well, I think it's a, a very real connection between two things that we all deal with on various levels, and they're fear and anxiety. We struggle to know or to have peace on, on the inside. They're, they're the opposite of peace, in fact, right? Fear and anxiety. And God must know He's got to know how pervasive and constant the struggle we have with these is because what's the most repeated command in the Bible? Don't be afraid. Do you think that's coincidence? Well, of course not. And I think it's not coincidence, or I think it's there, I should say, because he knows that that is so elusive for so many of us. They're even in our call to worship today, these words, do not be afraid, right? Because had you been a shepherd abiding in the field, keeping watch over your flock in the middle of the night, 
and lo, an angel of the Lord came upon you, and the glory of the Lord shone round about you, you'd be, you'd be sore afraid too, right? Sorry, I, I love uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus getting up there on the stage uh, with the spotlight on him. And I think they still show that on national TV, which is mind-boggling, but so neat, right? You'd be afraid too. Well, why is this a particularly powerful area of struggle? Well, I think it's a couple of reasons, but let me boil it down to this and, and just try to summarize it. Fear wants to be our boss. It demands authority. It says, this is how life really is, and you're not going to convince me otherwise. Not only that, when fear escalates, it wants relief, and it wants it when? Right now. Like, I, I need it instantly. It's a very impatient emotion. And what we experience is it moves from one temporary hope of relief to the next. And so we bounce around when we're fearful. But what it really wants is independence. It wants control. It wants self-protection, right? These are the core values of fear. But the odd thing, the ironic thing even, is that while fear and anxiety want peace, we, we run from what threatens us. We know, okay, I got to run from that. That's not good. But our fear and anxiety don't know what to run to. And so we're running from bad, but we're just sort of running all over the place rather than running to the thing that's going to relieve it. We, we know the danger, but we don't know where to find the peace that we long for. So in the scriptures, the scriptures tell us to slow down, Right? A very famous uh, verse from the Bible says to be still and then you'll know, what, that I'm God. Uh, we, we find relief in someone, not in something. Uh, a fearful child, middle of the night, wakes up, scared to death. Where do they find relief? Well, they find relief when they get in bed with their parents. Why? Because they can hide in someone stronger, bigger to protect them, Right? And we're designed to find peace in Jesus Christ and in him alone, the one who the Bible says is our peace. So how do you get it? We've lost it. How do we get it? Well, that leads me to, to the, uh, the second point there in your outline. The only way to know the peace that passes understanding is to be at peace with the Lord. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Well, if you look at the assurance of pardon in your worship folder, there's two passages, and I'm just going to take those in turn. We're just going to meditate on them uh, for a few minutes because they're connected. One describes how you get peace with God. The second describes the peace of God. You don't get one without the other. And Romans 5.1 comes first always. You don't get Philippians 4 unless you've got Romans 5 first. It only comes, as Paul says, if you look there in, in, uh, in your worship folder, it only comes through Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you got to, again, go back to Genesis. Sin's invasion into God's garden resulted in a declaration of war. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God initiates a conflict between Satan and the woman, between their children. And ultimately... And if you look at, well, you don't need to, to go there, but I'll just read from it. I will put enmity, that is hatred, conflict, right? I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is God talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise 
his heel. And ultimately, right, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent by getting crushed himself. See, to crush someone's head is obviously a mortal wound. That's a, that, that's a, that's it, right? If, if you get struck in the heel, it may hurt. That may cause you to limp. But getting your head crushed is a whole different story. And there's intentionality there on God's part to describe the conflict that way. Jesus would endure the conflict in order to bring peace, to restore God's shalom to the world, to end the exile, to say, you don't have to live east of Eden anymore. You can come back in. In fact, he's on a mission, and that's why I read what I read on the front of the worship folder. He's on a mission now. He's slowly but surely remaking the entire world into his palace garden where you can have peace and walk and talk with him in the cool of the day. In fact, you can go to Bach Tower in the cool of the day and walk and talk with God. Not that I'm equating Bach Tower to Eden. It's pretty close. It's a really nice place if you've not been there. Later on in Isaiah, Isaiah says this. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was wounded. His punishment brought us what? Peace. Gaining peace with God came at great cost to Jesus. Because the opposite of peace, of course, is war or conflict. That's an easy one for us to, to get. And part of the wonder of Christmas is that we're offered the peace of the child king. He says this, surrender to me and my pleasure will rest on you. Look at the call to worship. That very famous story where the shepherds are out there and what do the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, or peace on those with whom his pleasure rests. There's different translations of it. But this is the bottom line. The child king says, surrender to me, surrender now while the terms are peaceful. Bow to my kingship and my rule instead of pursuing yours, and you'll find what? Peace. And I'd be remiss if I didn't warn you that a time is coming when the terms will not be peaceful. The end of the Bible describes Jesus' second advent, and it will be a very different event than this one. The terms will not be peace when he returns to judge the earth. And so if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, what a great time of year to surrender your life to Jesus. I was thinking about that. What, what better, you know, in your story of how you came to faith to say, yeah, it was Christmas time. I remember that. that that'll, that's a winner, by the way. You could blog that, Facebook that, tweet that. Whatever that, snap that, I don't care what you do with it, it's gonna be, it's gonna be an instant hit. You have lots of likes or whatever it is that you get, all that stuff. When you submit by faith to the child king, you join that song, glory to God in the highest. But listen, peace with God is the only way to get the peace of God, so you gotta look at the second half of the assurance of pardon. And I just gotta, I gotta tell you, the, these these verses are incredible. Look at Philippians 4. So the second little paragraph there uh, of uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One writer says, that to share your anxieties with God is to destroy their corroding power over your heart. You, you're, you're destroying them by giving them to him or releasing them to him. 
Which is why Paul says, instead of being anxious, talk to your father. And then he says, the peace of God flowing from God surpasses all human understanding. It's beyond all human understanding. Why is that? Because it's from another world. It's the world that's here now. It's the world announced by Christmas. Having the peace of God is a small taste of the new world on its way, and it's a powerful testimony to this world. That's why when you see people who respond that way, everybody around them goes, wow, what, how? That's otherworldly, because it came from him. But Paul not only says it's beyond human understanding, he says it will guard your hearts and minds And the Greek word is a military word, and it refers to a fort or a garrison. And the idea is the peace of God will garrison your heart. It'll patrol your heart like a sentinel against the attacks of fear and anxiety. How is that? Because look where you are. The last three words of the verse or the passage. Where are you? Where's that peace? In Christ Jesus. And that's why when the angels tell the shepherds, don't be afraid, they're assuring the shepherds that God was there in that moment with them. He was close, and he spoke to the details of their life at the moment. See, Christmas is the good news of great joy that God is so close that he is with us, which is why Emmanuel is a word that we throw around usually only at this time of the year. We should throw it around all 364 other days too, right? <laughs> because when he left, and, and as Drew pointed out last week, he, he doesn't go with you, he goes where? In you, now that Holy Spirit has come. And so the Prince of Peace, through whom we have peace with our Creator, and in whom we are garrisoned from the barrage of fear and anxiety that life in this world seems to be full of can be ours. That's Jesus. Don't you want that? Encountering Jesus is so powerful that when his parents bring him to the temple, just a few verses after the call to worship story, an old man named Simeon looks into the eyes of Jesus the infant as he holds him and he says what? Lord, I can now die in peace because my eyes are actually looking at your salvation. That's amazing. But what's the effect? Lastly, lastly, we become people of peace. We practice peace. Third point there, peacemakers. Being under this rule of King Jesus, this child king, it results in a shalom-shaped life. Say that 10 times without getting tongue-twisted. Uh, and I'll give you a dollar. Okay, maybe five. Uh, (laughs) There's there's a context, and, and we've been bringing this up each week in Isaiah 9, and it is a people who are war torn and tired. Okay? The nation of Israel, as they looked at the Assyrian armies and all these bigger military machines around them, had to be thinking, oh my gosh, not again, right? The threats were never ending. And if you think about the fatigue of war and its effect on a nation, well, just Google images of Afghanistan or North Syria or Yemen. It's awful. 
Now, if you think about the fatigue of war, now think about the promise in verse 5, which says, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Would you not want to hear that? Would that not settle your heart? Would that not give you some sense of peace? Isaiah 9, verse 7 which is the last verse in our passage we've been meditating on all month, says something astounding about the child king's reign. It says, under him, the increase of shalom in the world will last for 100,000 years. Last for 100 years. Last until, you know, when? It will never end. Of this increase... And the government of his uh, of of the increase of his government of peace, there will never be an end. And this was the vision the prophets dreamed of. It's what Isaiah dreamed of when he said they'll beat their swords into plowshares. Okay, back to the, the 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 first page. It's swords becoming gardening tools. Lions eating straw instead of little calves. And in our day, something inside of us longs for things to be different, don't we? we? We know because of how we respond when we see things are happening as they should be. What happens inside of you? You do get a little twinge of this peace, don't you? My dad and I used to, uh, at the end of every uh, day, 6.30, we would sit down with our TV trays and watch Peter Jennings. World News Tonight, Peter Jennings. Still remember where I used to sit? and still remember Lesseur peas with most meals. <clears throat> but, he, but he did a good job. Uh, watching ABC with, with uh, Peter Jennings, it, there would always be a story that would end the broadcast, and it would be some feel-good story like self-sacrifice or some way in which someone was serving in their community, and they would always tease it out in the back sort of half of the broadcast, and it would literally be the last two minutes. So after, you know, spending the first... 25 minutes on the uh, war in Iraq or something, you know, the Gulf War or whatever was going on at that time, there would always be this, this feel-good ending. Why was that? I think because they knew, oh, man, people get tired of those first 25 minutes. Night after night after night. So let's give them something good. Not only that, but you feel blessed by good health especially after getting over a bad illness, right? Brad had strep throat this week. He's feeling better. What's that like? We know there's something good going on there. Our mood is instantly lifted if we get money back because what we bought just went on sale and we overpaid, right? Or you might catch yourself staring at your children on Christmas morning, even for a moment as they all play together and enjoy their gifts. Well, even for just a moment. It just happens for a couple of moments. You're, you're catching something. You're appreciating that. And it's something even non-Christians understand. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is to have succeeded. He got it. And he didn't know Jesus if he has smacked him in the face. Christians are tasked with increasing the net amount of shalom in the world. So your life should 
shalom should be net gaining in your life and in the residue of your life. So what are the, some of the ways that we can do that? Well, when you choose to forgive rather than hold a grudge, that's a net gain for shalom. When you choose to show kindness to someone who is dead set against you, also known as an enemy, it's a net gain. When your older child gives up their movie choice so that your younger one can watch their choice instead, mine aren't here in this service, but they'll be here in the second service, and I hope that sentence really gets them. But those of you that have children in here, when your older children give up their movie choice, maybe tomorrow night, let's say, uh, so that the younger one can watch their choice, shalom, right? Peace. Or when you choose not to respond to that tweet, rather than fire off an emotionally charged reply, it's a net game for shalom. All of these are forms of peacemaking as opposed to troublemaking. You can, as we've heard before, be a troublemaker or a peacemaker. And the Bible calls peacemakers blessed because they're what? Sons of God. It proves you're a child. So if you wanna know what a person who experiences peace and then becomes a peacemaker looks like, let me end with the story of Louis, uh, Louis Zamperini. His story is recounted in the book Unbroken. It's a powerful read if you've not read it. I think they made a movie about it. I'm sure that's good too. But Zamperini, uh, was very famous uh, because he uh, ran in the Olympics. But then he served in World War II in the Pacific and they were shot down. He survived on a raft for like 45 days and then was picked up by the Japanese. He was taken to a POW camp where he was tortured mercilessly and repeatedly day in and day out. And one particular, the, the head of the prison camp, whose nickname was The Bird, had heard that this famous Olympian was now one of his prisoners, and he took personal joy in abusing him. Well, after the camp was liberated and Zamperini returned home, he was broken, he was filled with anger, he became depressed, he was uh, abusing alcohol, uh, it, was, it was bad. And in 1946, his wife convinced him to go to a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. He went on the first night, he told her, I'll go tonight, but don't make me go any of the other nights. Somehow, she convinced him to go the second night. And on the second night, he gave his life to Christ. So he's converted, and he experiences, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And it, it garrisoned his heart to the extent that he went back to Japan and publicly in front of the entire Japanese people forgave his captors, went to meet with the bird who refused to meet with him. So he wrote the bird a letter that you can read online where he offers him forgiveness because he had been forgiven by Jesus. Having experienced peace, he became a peacemaker. And when the peace of the Prince of Peace comes upon you, that's the kind of otherworldly activity, otherworldly behavior that you can exhibit by the power of the Spirit. So as we come to the table, let's ask him uh, to continue to work peace in each of us. And if you're not a Christian, uh, fall on your knees and say, I surrender to you, King Jesus. I need the peace that you offer desperately.
So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do stand in awe and wonder that you are, instead of allowing darkness to, to reign, you're increasing the light in the world. You're increasing the joy rather than the sadness and the gloom. You're increasing justice and righteousness rather than injustice and oppression. And you're increasing shalom instead of chaos and disorder and war. And we pray that you would, by your grace, make us peacemakers, make us people who are committed to increasing the net amount of shalom in the world, and that people, through our behavior, would see you, and they'd wonder, not at us, but at you, the child king, the brave little boy who is our savior, son of God and son of man. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, each week when you hear these words, uh, the word peace is in them. So you get peace. If you're in Christ, these words are the promise that not only does he go with you, he goes in you and he goes in you to give you these things. So the peace with God results in a peace of God flowing out of you into the world so that you become a peacemaker. That's the, that's the lesson. So receive these words, hold your hands out and grab them tight because we need them desperately. Uh, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Merry Christmas.